When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Upland Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome back to the show for episode number 67. Episode of the Project Up and Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app in the iTunes or Google Play Store today. On behalf of the crew at Project Upland and Northwoods Collective, we are extremely excited to announce that Onyx Hunt is back on board as the title sponsor to not only this podcast, but also the Endless Migration Podcast and the Gun Dog Notebook Podcast. I've been a fan and a user of Onyx Hunt for three or four years now. I absolutely love the 
the tool. I think it's invaluable, and I think its application is so diverse and so broad. I'm confident everybody listening to this podcast has something to gain by using Onyx Hunt. I'm really excited to have them back on board here at the Project Company Podcast, and I encourage everybody listening to go to onyxmaps.com and check it out today. Try it out. They always have a free trial or discount code. You will not regret it. If you have questions about it, you can ask me. Welcome back, Onyx Hunt. Thank you. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the finest rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience located in northern Minnesota. You haven't experienced grouse camp until you've experienced it at Pine Ridge. I was out at Pine Ridge last week training dogs with my buddy Jerry Havel, some of the other characters that are normally hanging around there, Kevin Shepard of the American Bird Conservancy, Earl the Pearl Johnson of his own fame. Always a good time out at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. He's got pointer puppies on the ground. We work dogs. We talk double guns it was a good time and i will be back out there before the summer is done find out more about the pine ridge experience at pineridgegrousecamp.com and by dogtra callers for over 30 years dogtra has collaborated with industry professionals to create class leading tools for e-collar training gps tracking and more to support bird dog owners in developing top-notch dogs learn more about dogtra callers and all of their products by visiting dogtra.com and by yukonuba premium performance dog food out in the field how you prepare determines how you'll perform with balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog yukonuba premium performance dog food enhances strength energy and endurance so when that tailgate finally drops you and your dogs are ready for anything strong focused ready for anything that is a yukonuba dog and by gordian sons outfitters when your boots have the proper tread never notice how slippery it is when your hunting jacket features the right liner your body temperature won't enter your mind and when your shooting vest allows total freedom of movement you won't think twice about swinging through that quail at gordian sons they want you to focus solely on the hunt and not the performance of your gear that's why the gordy family has personally curated the best in class gear from around the globe for their store learn more about gordian sons the gear the guides the expertise by visiting gordiansons.com and by Dakota 283 Kennels. Kennels built to last a lifetime. Unparalleled pet protection. One-piece rotomold design, frame steel door, everything you need in a kennel for you and your dogs to have a safe and successful hunting trip. Head over to Dakota283.com. Use the promo code PU10, that's PU10, for 10% off any kennel from Dakota283.com. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Cade from Washington. Cade is 13 years old. He just started bird hunting about a year ago. He loves the podcast. He gave us some great feedback, and I'm pumped to hear from people like Cade. 13 years old out of Washington. He's becoming a bird hunter. He's well on his way. All the best to you, Cade. Thanks for listening, and we're happy to have you as part of the Project Upland community. For that, got a t-shirt headed your way real soon anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway all you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to this show leave us a rating leave us a review subscribe to the podcast share the podcast post send us some feedback a guest suggestion tell me a hunting story love to hear from our listeners email me anytime at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com all right one quick reminder i've got an upcoming interview scheduled with jc bosch from no limits kennels we are soliciting questions from our listener base if you have a question you would like to ask jc bosch email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com if you're unfamiliar with jc rewind and listen to episode number 32 where we interviewed him for the first time be interviewing him again in the next couple of weeks send your questions my way 
All right, we're going to dive into today's interview. Our guest today is the newest, latest and greatest, although I'm sure he would not describe himself that way, president and CEO of the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society, Ben Jones. This was an interview that I recorded while in Pennsylvania with Ben, myself, and AJ DeRosa of Northwoods Collective had met for a couple of days out in Pennsylvania regarding some things that we're all working on together and we've recorded this podcast back in March but most of it is still relevant as the main focus of the story was the story of Ben Jones how he grew up a hunter how he became a conservationist and how he found himself leading an organization that strives to create healthy forests and abundant wildlife so let's hear it from the man himself and jump into our interview with AJ DeRosa and Ben Ben Jones. All right, gentlemen, what do you say we get this thing started? Yeah. You sound so serious. Well, I take this very seriously, AJ. Do I have to use my serious voice? No, you definitely don't. Definitely don't. Hey, everybody. Nick Larson with the Project Upland Podcast coming to you all for the very first time live and in person. Not necessarily live coming to you, the listener but in person with our two guests today. And we are on site in uh, Acropolis, PA, headquarters of the Rough Girl Society. And we are here with the newest president and CEO of the Rough Girl Society, Ben Jones. Ben, how are you doing this evening? Very well, Nick. Appreciate you joining us on the podcast. We'll get back to you in a second, but we got to introduce guest number two. The listeners probably know him well. Say hello to the listeners. Hello, everybody. It is AJ, and I'm busy recording this on film. <laughs> wow, that was kind of like anticlimactic almost, wasn't it? <laughs> you get your uh, your double dipping, recording the podcast, getting some film. Yeah, you know, just hanging out in a hotel room filming because that's what we've resorted to in life. Now, that's a good thing, right? Ben said that was a good thing. Means we. Well, when does the music start? Like, there's music at the beginning of your podcast. Yeah, but when does see, the band come? You know, in? that comes after the fact. That's, oh. that's the magic is after it comes after the fact we do a little editing, a little post-processing, all that good stuff. So today we're here to just talk about rough grouse, healthy forests and all kinds of fun stuff. Yeah. But we started the day with a hearty breakfast of waffles and syrup from Ben. Yeah. Ben, tell Perry. us about the, sh- tell us about the syrup operation. Yeah. Perry County maple syrup we tap about 70 sugar maple trees there around our place in perry county pennsylvania uh, something the kids and i get into in the the winter time the the doldrums the cabin fever days and yeah shared some with y'all this morning and most of it we just share with friends and yep. give us gifts it keeps us busy it's just a lot of fun to do it's time in the woods when you wouldn't otherwise be in in the woods I, I have to ask this. Go for it. Do you shoot squirrels out of the same trees? Absolutely. <laughs> Not as many as I do out of the walnut trees. <laughs> okay, all right. Fair enough. I just have this image of you, you know, like tapping, you know, like going out there and then suddenly grabbing your twenty two because there's a squirrel suddenly appeared in the canopy. So you guys are right out of the gate blowing my cover, squirrel hunter, maple tapper, you know. Yeah, exactly. Well, you're an all-around hunter. <laughs> Is this acceptable for the Rough Grouse Society? Well, I, I think there's a lot of people in our audience who are certainly all-around hunters. I don't think people yeah. are isolated, but you're uh, quite the deer hunter, too. I, I love all forms of hunting, yes. Yeah. What's uh, what's your favorite carry weapon for the squirrels? 
Oh, I have a, a Marlin 22 that I bought with lawn mowing money when I was 10 or 11 years old, and that's what I still carry so today it. for whacking squirrels. Yep, it's MOA at 50 yards. It's a squirrel, squirrel killing machine. No scatter guns no. on the squirrels? No, not anymore. When I was a kid, I, I did hunt squirrels with a shotgun a little bit. Yeah. When I was a kid, we used to. It just used to be small game hunts, and whether it was grouse or woodcock, or we always had beagles growing up. I, I think uh, I've revealed that already that I grew up <laughs> with beagles and have a hankering for getting another one. But yeah, we small game hunted, and my dad, when I was eleven, I got a Sears and Roebuck Model two hundred twelve gauge pump, and that harvested squirrels and bunnies and morning doves and woodcock and grouse and pheasants. Yeah, excellent. Well, we uh, we touched on it. You are the newest uh, president and CEO of Rough Grouse Society, and we're going to come back to that. We're going to talk lots about Rough Grouse Society. We're going to talk about healthy forests, but you dipped into the story there a little bit, how Ben right. Jones kind of found, found his way here, fill in the gaps for us and bring us up to speed. Yeah, so, um, man, I, just, I grew up outside, and it was just always something, wildlife and being outside, it was just always something that was really really drawn to and my parents always really nurtured that i mean they couldn't stop it i was just constantly outside i remember vividly when i was i was probably about six or seven it was the last day of uh first grade walking to school and seeing a brood of woodcock remember every time i saw deer it was like a magical experience and you know sitting at the window waiting for my dad to get home after the first week of deer season and yeah, it's just, it was always just magical stuff to me, wildlife, hunting, and being outside. Yeah. And so, obviously, a love for wildlife, pursuing game at an early age, your dad's a hunter. So, you kind of mm-hmm. had, I talk about this before, you just kind of had that easy in, but right. how, did, how did that develop into you wanting to pursue a career in conservation and forest management? Yeah, well, it was always just such a, like an overwhelming life passion that it's just kind of what I always always knew what I wanted to do and my dad went to Penn State so it was like you know the land-grant university for a Pennsylvania kid you were going to go to Penn State and Penn State great forestry and wildlife program so I can't remember a time when I didn't know that's what I was going to do sure so you know talking with young people today my wife and my kids always laugh they'll get into discussions about yeah what do you want to do and they just look at me they're like you're no help here because i always just knew uh, exactly what it was i wanted to do and my parents nurtured that and um yeah i was able to do it and i did i went to penn state for forestry and wildlife and actually i went starting in wildlife science and realized pretty early on that the biggest opportunity for wildlife conservation was going to be in habitat management and also realized early on that that the wildlife biologists the the critter people weren't talking the same language as the foresters and that in, in habitat management understanding forest management was going to be really important and so it kind of made it from that point a career goal to really blend wildlife biology and and the technical aspects of of forestry to make um make habitat management happen. Yeah, so I combined those two. And uh, uh, the one thing we didn't talk about that we were talking about earlier is I love the turkey hunt. Yeah. <laughs> and 
So as I was finishing up, is that a, wait a minute? Is that a confession on Project Upland podcast? <laughs> oh, <laughs> that, yeah. You know what? That the president of the Rough Grouse Society loves turkey hunting. <laughs> add, it, add it to the list, man. Squirrels, turkeys, whitetails, all that. I don't think there's a form of hunting that we haven't talked about over the last two days. Right. That all of us don't wow. love or want to love, want to pursue it. Basically, it's early March, and that you know the days get long enough, and I think we're affected by photo period too. Yeah. And I get to thinking about turkey hunting in early March. But anyway, um, I always really enjoyed turkey hunting. I, I read up a lot and being in wildlife and forestry, I read up on what was going on in turkey research at the time. There was this guy, George Hurst at Mississippi State University, who was doing all this groundbreaking stuff with wild turkeys and turkey habitat. And so as, as I was ready to finish up at Penn State, I just started cold calling George Hurst. Said, you know, I'd love to come come work with you down there. I'm really interested in what you got going on. And called him about every other week uh, to the point where he recognized my voice when he picked up the phone. And then on the day I graduated from Penn State, he said, get down here. I got a project for you. So I threw everything I owned into an 89 Bronco 2 and headed for southwestern Mississippi from north central Pennsylvania. And worked down there for three years. And I'll never forget when I pulled in to the, to the station where I was working. Uh, I was working on a, a project looking at prescribed fire and forest management for uh, turkey habitat management, red cockaded woodpeckers and quail. And I pulled into this field station and they had been doing a prescribed burn. And I had never seen a prescribed burn coming from north central Pennsylvania and they had done this 3,000 acre burn and it was dark and everybody was just gone and the woods were still on fire and knowing of course what I know now the perimeter was secured and you know everything was mopped up but the fire had continued burning in the middle of the unit but that was my first exposure to prescribed fire um, and then learned a lot more about the importance of fire and and forest management for upland birds when I was in Mississippi that was, a, that was an awesome experience down yeah. there uh, is is uh, your alleged nickname true? I didn't know that, but <laughs> yeah. So for the listeners that don't know, I have, and I don't remember who told me, but allegedly that Ben's nickname is I Firefly. <laughs> I did not know that Firefly. Perhaps a little indication there in some of your background. Well, coming back when I finally ended up back home in Pennsylvania pursuing a career in, in habitat management, one of the first things I did uh, was start a prescribed fire program and start promoting prescribed fire uh, with the Pennsylvania Game Commission, managing that public land base. And my position is public land section chief. Um, just saw all the benefits down there and um, throughout the Appalachians for fire use. So it pushed real hard. Uh, we made some changes to legislation, formed a prescribed fire council and did a lot of groundwork for getting a fire program started and was really committed to that. So that may have been where the nickname came from. So when, when I first met you and we first started geeking out over crazy things like forestry management, um, you were telling me a lot about the use of fire and specifically around tick management. It was one of the mm -hmm. first conversations we ever had. And I don't, I, I actually don't think we have ever finished that conversation, but you were, you were really passionate about it. And, and I remember kind of being shocked at like, what the science was showing specifically around ticks. So I think there's a lot of listeners, especially for people in areas that have a lot of tick issues. I mean, I'm from New England, so it's like an epidemic. Um, what that science actually means. Yeah, 
Um, there's been quite a, a bit of work done looking at, at tick populations in areas that are frequently burned. And you might expect that in a fire, that the fire would kill ticks right immediately. And the thing that we were have been surprised about that studies here in Pennsylvania showed and other ones um, in the Appalachians too was that that reduction in ticks lasts for several years. And it seems like it's connected with some changes in vegetation type. So if you have fire excluded from an area for a long time and the density of that vegetation and the ability of that vegetation to keep a moisture conducive to ticks, when you're burning those areas and you change that vegetation structure, you actually have a, a significant reduction in ticks for three and four years out. Some of the numbers from here in Pennsylvania, the first year of burning, it was over 80 to 90% reduction in ticks. But then at the end of the first year, it was still over 60% reduction in ticks where there's a fire. So, so is that specifically in the burn zone or is that surrounding areas as well? Is it having that, that kind of an impact? Yeah, it's within the areas that were burned. Okay. Yeah. So it's killing ticks, and then it's making it real hard for them to come back. Right. Yeah. Right. The veg- vegetation structure has changed and isn't as hospitable to ticks at that point. Got it. And is this something that do you feel like could have some real legs to become a management tool in this epidemic in some places? Yeah. Well, what we're looking at right now is... And, you know, some 10,000 years since this part of the country has been forested, uh, humans were burning it. And this is one of the longest fire-free periods we've had on this landscape over that whole time scale. And we, when we were looking at using fire to restore habitats in Pennsylvania, we started a fire history study where we're looking at pine stumps and cutting cross-sections of these pine stumps. And you can find out more about this um, on the Oak Woodlands Forest Fire Consortium. Uh, we teamed up with the University of Missouri, did a study here in Pennsylvania. So you cut these cross sections and you see these historic fire scars. And we dated these things back through the 1600s, 1500s. The oldest one we found was 1392. So we're talking wow. totally pre-European. Yeah. Um, but the reason we did that is if we were restoring these habitats, we had to understand how fire behaved historically. And through this study, we found that fires occurred about, on average, every five to six years across the landscape. What is it? What is it when you're examining that stump? How do you how do you tell the year where the fire was there? Some some kind of obviously, I'm guessing a pattern in the wood. Yeah. So you find this old stump that's just that they can be upright or laying and underneath the laurel. Uh, I've tripped over them turkey hunting and never thought much of them until I got out with the the folks from the University of Missouri, and you realize these things are a treasure trove of information. So you cut a cross section of it, and it looks just like a cookie that you would cut, cut in firewood or whatever. You can see the tree rings. Mm -hmm. And so then you cut a living tree, and you match up kind of like bookends those tree rings because tree rings in a given year will have a a similar width due to drought conditions or whatever. And so you have this known age tree that was living that you just cut and you match it like a bookend with this unknown age tree. And it lets you extend that historical record. So how would you get back then to something as old as the 1300s? Like how, how are you finding a tree that's old, you know, that's living, that's old enough to get that date back? We actually had bridge trees in between that age. So I had your living tree and then you bookended it with a dead tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and it took us a while because we found these really old trees and we didn't have the connector between them. And then we started finding a couple of the connectors and it wow. all came together and we were able to complete this whole history. It's absolutely fascinating. That is. One in your hands and, and realize what you're looking at. But there was a lot of fire across the landscape. And like I said, every five or six years, these fires were, were burning across the landscape. And it was mostly native people. Right. And they were doing a lot of burning for habitat management, which really gave me the chills when you really started thinking about what was going on and what we're trying to do now. And so there's just been this kind of odd period over the last hundred years where humans decided that fire was bad on this landscape and completely excluded it. And it's a really important part of forest ecosystems. And I think with the tick epidemic, the tick numbers we're seeing now is just one of many symptoms of having removed this process. I feel like this is where we insert the remember the Heath hen line, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Completely fire dependent. Right. Heath Heath species. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. How we've got we could talk about fire. Well, that's for, a, yeah, for, yeah, yeah. A we got of, sidetracked. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I do want to talk about. I'm gonna ask one more question on the fire. Uh, okay. That is how widespread is can fire be utilized? I mean, is it all around the country? Because I, I tend to think about it like I know it's used in the south, and I know we do pr- prescribed burns in the Northwoods too. I mean, is it is there applications everywhere? Yeah, there there are broad applications, and over the past four or five decades, there's been a ton of of forest service research and academic research looking into some of the forest health issues that we're facing across the landscape and and learning more about what fire's role is in that. So yeah, fire had a role in a lot of different systems. And if you look at uh, typical oak systems in Pennsylvania, you know, we might have had these phosphorus call it five to 10 year fire intervals where fire was coming through there every five to 10 years. And those Northern hardwoods, like it up in Northern Pennsylvania, that fire interval may have been a little bit longer, but still every 20, 25, 30, or even 40 years. But still, when you can compare that to the current fire free period of a hundred and some odd years in a lot of places, it's, it's out of natural balance. Yeah. Okay. All right, cool. Well, that's another podcast. We'll come back to another podcast. <laughs> That's I mean, a film, a podcast, yeah, yeah, a million articles. Yeah, yeah. They might, uh, listeners might see and or hear a little bit more about that in a future episode. <laughs> but we're making our way to the Rough Grouse Society. But before yeah. we get there, we got to take a stop at one of your positions with the PA Game Commission. Mm-hmm. Um, Pittman-Robertson and public lands. Those are two yes. topics that are very present in LWCF of course LWCF yeah yeah exactly current current events uh they've been in the story and news lines for the recent recent past and it's Mm -hmm. it's kind of like at the forefront of a lot of the stuff that we're all involved in right now you've got a really unique perspective on putting Pittman Robertson funds to use for public lands management Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, after I did my tour in the South and spent some time in Mississippi, and then I wound up in the in the um, Southern Appalachians and Western North Carolina on a grouse project. We'll talk about that in a little bit, I'm sure. Yeah. But I made my way back home to Pennsylvania and uh, came up here to work as a public land section chief for the Pennsylvania Game Commission. And the unique thing about... Um, the state game land system. It's one of the few land bases in the country. It's a million and a half acres and it's solely managed by an independent 
Wildlife Agency. And it's mandated to be managed for hunting opportunity and wildlife conservation. So it's pretty unique. They're, all other uses of that land are secondary to hunting and wildlife conservation. You know, whether it's um, horseback riding or other recreational uses, those are all secondary uses. So it's this real gem of a public land base, and it's large. It's a million and a half acres, occurs in all but two counties. Um, so I came back to Pennsylvania and worked as a public land section chief, and that then that was my baby, that, that state game land system and oversight of its management. And um, worked, worked as public land section chief for a couple of years and then was promoted to habitat division chief where I oversaw public lands and private lands programs. Um, but things that we got involved with on the public lands end was developing um, management plans for this land base. And, you, you know, you just talk about all the nuance of public lands management we were dealing with it. How do you balance needs for access versus um, the desire for people to get in where people don't have, other hunters don't have road access? Yeah, just, just a ton of different things to consider. And uh, one of the unique things about Pennsylvania, which is a top three, always top five state for Pittman-Robertson allocations was since the early 1970s, most of that Pittman-Robertson allocation in Pennsylvania was spent on public lands for access, for habitat management, for land acquisition. Yeah, so overseeing the, the Pittman-Robertson program was a big part of what I did. Yeah. Were the, are the PA Game Commission lands, are they off-limits to motorized use or no? They are, for the most part, off-limits to motorized use. There are a few designated snowmobile trails, and there are um, disabled access routes that the people can access with appropriate permits and and an ATV or other motorized vehicle. But for the most part, they're off-limits. But, you know, there are gated roads, and sometimes those roads are open seasonally during hunting season, so hunters can get back in. I I think last night you were saying specifically... Uh, again, that the number one a- access reason for all of that land is for hunting. Is that right, correct? It's hunting opportunity, hunting, and, and that's and the trapping. number one. You were that's kind of placing like a number on it, right. like and yeah, that that's was, that's that the was, mandate. Right, yeah, that was first priority, and that's right. kind of where I was getting at. In that, I, I was fascinated when we were talking about it last night. In that, those are a component of the public lands available mm-hmm. to Pennsylvania hunters. Right. That that piece of land is hunting number one priority. And then there's another, there's a, another 2 million acres or so that's public land, yeah. but it's yeah. more of a equal opportunity landscape. Yeah. There's 2.1 million acres of, of state forest. That's what, you know, I guess it's more aptly referred to as multiple use. And so recreation of various types has equal footing with hunting. Uh, and then there's a half a million acre national forest and about 400,000 acres of state parks, most of which are open to hunting as well. So yeah, there's a... There's a bunch of public land here in Pennsylvania, and as public land section chief, it wasn't just hemmed in to only a million and a half acres. Uh, We did a lot of cooperative agreements with those other agencies and and got to be involved in partnerships and managing public lands on a broad scale. Yeah. So I learned a lot, and it was really fulfilling. Every day, you know, here's this kid that grew up just dreaming about this stuff, and now I saw my job as my job was to make sure that these public lands were as good as they could be for hunting opportunity. I mean, that's an incredible, yeah. <laughs> incredible right. privilege to have as your so job. I got to ask, like, I wouldn't say it's a selfish question, but it's just like this question that like irks me because it's like, so 
Project Upland is a platform that likes to give people kind of the tools to be able to go out and follow from, you know, getting a hunting license for the first time to actually successfully hunting birds or whatnot, or a new species of birds, you know, jumping around, coming from being a grouse hunter to becoming a sharp-tailed grouse hunter, whatever it might be. Um, you know, we've been accused of spot burning in some situations, but it's like when you talk about that amount of land in a single state, I mean, and this is kind of our thing is like, there is so much like unutilized land, like, you know, you're talking about millions of acres in a single state. And it's like, how is there not enough for all of us to be like, hey, this is there to use? Like, so what's like, and I mean, I guess, you know, I'm asking you again, I feel like it's a selfish question, because I'm asking you to comment on a broader national scale. But it's like, when you look at it from that perspective, is there in coming from a state agency that worked in there? Is there an issue of like, Oh, there, there is like, there's so many hunters in that property. There isn't another place to hunt or that things are overrun because I feel like there's a lot of sentiment in the community right now. Like, Oh, there's just so many hunters out there, which is outrageous because again, we're the number of hunters today is significantly lower than what it was 20 years ago. So, um, you know, can you clarify that? Can you kind of give a, a wisdom to that or, or, or an outlook, you know? Yeah. The state game land system. So there were, game lands tracks i think there was up to about 330 different tracks and there was at least one track within 20 minutes of most pennsylvanians and they range from 200 acres to over 50,000 acre tracks so of course on on the smaller acreage especially places that got put and take pheasants they did get hit pretty hard but there was opportunity on the first day of deer season to get into places on other game lands where you could have that experience and not see anybody. I always find that interesting in that I, I hunt some areas that are very rich in public lands. Uh, like we have a wealth of it. And I know I'm not the only one in the woods, but I'm amazed when I do have the opportunity to go out and whether I'm grouse hunting in the North Woods and, and I don't see anybody else. And, you know, there's sort of that give and take where it's cool to do that, to go out and hunt and not see anybody. But then you, yeah, I also respect when I do see another hunter out there right? in that you want, you want the camaraderie and you want to see other people out there utilizing the resource in the way that you do. But, you know, pressure is one of those things where it can flip on a dime and all of a sudden you feel overcrowded. And I think it's probably pretty localized and it depends on how, how big those tracks are like you're talking about. Well, and this was part of the, the job to, to ensure that these hunting lands were as good as they could possibly be. So we needed to have an active management program, especially when we look at forest health issues and the overall age of our forest. So we would write state game lands plans. And the first thing that we always did was take an inventory. This is, and they're predominantly forested, the state game lands. And we take this inventory and the pattern just repeated itself, repeated itself. How, what was the diversity of that forest? How much young forest was there versus uh, middle-aged forest versus older forest versus really old forest. And it was always, you know, this real steep bell-shaped curve where everything was just kind of this 100-year-old forest because of what happened around 1900, give or take 20 years, where the entire landscape was over-exploited and it was all cut at one time. And then at various times, it all caught on fire. Um so what we're looking at now, and that and that's what started the first conservation movement of 
of conserving these public lands was that over-exploitation. So now we have large landscapes of a single-aged forest around 100 years old. And so that can't support the habitat diversity. I can't support the wildlife and the hunting opportunity that a forest with multiple age classes and a lot more diverse, diverse habitats could hold. So uh, we had a really active forest management program, prescribed fire again, trying to diversify the single aged forest that we had as a legacy from a hundred years ago. Yeah. And to me, that that's what, what made the difference on the hunter carrying capacity. If you have 10,000 acres of really poor, all single age, 100, 100 year old forest that can't hold as many deer or as many hunters or have the best chance for success as a forest with a lot of diverse age classes. Sure. Well, I think we figured out a couple things, Ben. You're a smart guy <laughs> and you've got a really, really unique experience and background that I think makes it no surprise where you find yourself today. So well, let's. And I think there's a piece of looting here, and this is uh, when we were out at NAVDA. You and I both spoke there at the NAVDA 50th anniversary, and um, I spoke just before you, and I had the honor of introducing you, and I kind of dropped the ball because I said, you know, you know, here's, you know, I, I expressed my personal relationship with RGS, how passionate I am about all those things, and I was like, here's the new president, Ben Jones, and um, then Marilyn from uh, NAVDA said, you know, here's Dr. Ben Jones. And I was like, oh, great. So he's a doctor. And I'm just like, you know, my buddy here, Ben Jones, you know, just went to school all those years for nothing, you know. Um, but you're 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 young, too. Pinky's up, gentlemen. PhD, <laughs> Pinky's up. Yeah. you got to be the youngest president of the Rough Girl Society. That, that may well be true. Yeah. Maybe true. So, and you're, I think you exposed that you're going to be 44, you said next week? Yeah, on Saturday. On Saturday. Yes. So that is, We're all cool. I mean, we can you talk are. about each other's ages on the podcast, right? Right. Well, we just did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, by the way, AJ. It is my birthday today. Yeah. Creative director of Project Up with AJ DeRosa, March 5th. Happy yeah. birthday, buddy. 37. <laughs> I'm the youngest of the bunch then at 33. Yeah. Well, but yeah. 44, I mean, and I mean, I got to address the elephant in the room is just uh -oh. the energy um, that you're bringing to the Rough Grouse Society. I mean, me and Nick are diehard RGS guys, like in the sense of like, you, you like we don't have to be paid to be involved type. Like, we're just like, we're going to show up. We're going to we're going to preach that book like and, and whatever else. But like you are like you excite guys like us where it's like, like we're doing this, you know, like it's, it's, it's a shift in an organization that has done phenomenal things. Like I'm not speaking poorly of the past, but this is a shift. Um, and, and I think it's important to emphasize that, and especially to our audience to think about how progressive this really is. You're talking about somebody who's got a doctorate in this subject, somebody who's affected millions of acres of land, somebody that's been directly involved in so many different, you know, aspects of what this actually is, and then bringing that energy of youth into it at the same time. Like, like that is just, it's an incredible thing. Well, yeah. I'll second it. I will second it, Ben. Before, <laughs> before we turn it over to you, I will say that, yeah, it's, uh, it's been really fun hanging out the last couple of days, getting to know you. And like AJ said, obviously 
you're knowledgeable, you've got a really unique experience and background that I think plays right into your position with the RGS. And again, you know, AJ said it, we're both really passionate about the organization and I'm happy to see you there, but tell us about, tell us about you as president and CEO of the Rough Grouse Society. Is it something you were trying to become or did it just come out of the blue? How did it happen? Oh, no. It, um, like I said, I was, I was in my dreams job, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I definitely was not looking at the time. And a friend of mine forwarded an email to me, said, man, you got to check out this job. I'm like, man, I'm not even looking for a job. And um, at the time, my wife and I had bought our, our dream farm and a piece of property, which I had always dreamed of having my own property. And we were completely gutting this old farmhouse and, you know, down to the studs. It was freezing cold in there, you know. And I get this email, hey, you should apply for this job. I said, man, there's there's just no way. And I was sitting there one night, and I pulled it up. And I'm like, man, the Rough Grouse Society. Now, that's that's different. And, you know, what I saw with the Rough Grouse Society and this long history of RGS since ni- 1961, so we'll be up on our 60th year anniversary yeah. soon. And uh, the reputation for science-based management supporters of science-based forest and wildlife management, the reputation of the organization. And for me personally, an opportunity to expand influence on conservation through the Rough Grouse Society um, was just an an incredible opportunity um, to take a lot of the things that we had learned in Pennsylvania, building a fire program, uh, building a successful forest management program, what we were doing on public lands, and, and taking that to other places just was really exciting. So for me, it was an opportunity uh, to really engage in a, a larger role in conservation. And as I met with the board during the interview process, I mean, it was a, it was a two-way interview for sure. And what I sensed out of the board was that they were hungry for that too. And they absolutely are. They want their organization that they love uh, to be more impactful on a larger scale because we're facing a lot of forest health issues and a lot of conservation issues right now. And um, yeah, they, they wanted something bigger and so did I. And, you know, I guess you guys pointed it out. I'm not twilighting in my career here. I'm in it for the, for the long haul. And, you know, I'll say that the Rough Grouse Society, and I love the attention to public lands as people are standing up right now as threats are occurring to our public land ownership. Um, and the Rough Grouse Society has been engaged in public lands since its inception almost 60 years ago. And I, I think there's a proud tradition there. And we're, we're pumped that more people are getting engaged on it, too, and looking forward to partnering and, like I said, advancing and furthering that conservation impact. It's it's absolutely exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like we said, you know, like the current events with the S 47 bill and, and mm-hmm. that's LWCF. Do you have some perspective on that as far? I mean, I think it's been pretty well covered, but do you have some perspective on what it means to upland bird hunters at, that are listening to this podcast? Oh yeah. I think the majority of upland bird hunters and I've enjoyed so much meeting so many people uh, across the country in the 38 States where rough grouse society has members and hearing about where they hunt, I mean, to a person, almost everybody hunts public lands. Yeah, it's so important for for furthering hunting, and of course, the recruitment, retention, reactivation issues. Uh, absolutely important. 
Um, LWCF, really important, you know, like we talked earlier, really understand how important those funding sources are. And um, I believe we need to expand our public land reach and certainly hold on to what we've got. Yeah, it's precious to us. It's absolutely necessary for what we do. And it's necessary for wildlife conservation, too. Yeah, for sure. So as much as I am familiar with the Rough Growl Society, I imagine a good number of the listeners are. But I and as much as the of the contacts that I've made with other upland bird hunters and passionate members of the organization, I mean, ultimately, the way I see the Rough Grouse Society is they are an organization built on healthy forests. And I think that it would do well to the listeners if we could hear you talk a little bit about healthy forests. What's the current state of our forests, the way that you see it, kind of looking through the eyes of the Rough Grouse Society, and, and what makes up a healthy forest? Yeah, a lot of those issues that we spoke about a few minutes ago with um, the single-aged forest and uh, removal of, of natural processes like like fire uh, and introduction of new non-native pests, there are a lot of a lot of pressures uh, working against our our forest systems right now. And the biggest of these, and a forest that is a single-age, non-diverse forest, is one that is really susceptible. And the term we like to use is not resilient. Yeah. And we need to be able to increase the resiliency of our forests. And um, the lack of diversity in forests, especially across the east, is is a, a big problem. That's our biggest problem in forest health right now. And the exclusion of fire unnaturally for over... A century, and again, the introduction of non-native pests, and really the constriction of the forest land base to it. But we talk about all these other threats. Probably the number one threat to wildlife habitat and to forest wildlife is development, is loss of, of forest. Um, so we're working on more constricted land bases, um, trying to manage for diverse wildlife habitat and ever increasingly smaller areas yeah so there are a lot of challenges what are the main challenges that stand out to you that are in the way of a healthier forest knowing that you know we're never going to probably reach perfection but of course we want to we want healthier forests so what are the what are the things that we can do to make that happen what's standing in the way yeah increasing forest diversity is really the biggest issue out there right now. And that's going to increase the resiliency of those forests and trying to restore natural systems as well as we can. And understanding as we do that, that we're doing so in a very human dominated, human influenced world. Um, We're trying to make these, these natural systems resilient in the middle of all that. And the, the lack of diversity is really one of the biggest issues. And, um, in most cases, we need to be able to actively manage those forests yeah. to keep them resilient. And one of the biggest things impacting diversity is the single age class. And we need to have some young forest, some middle-aged forest, and some much older forest all interspersed as it would have been naturally across the landscape and those diverse forest landscapes are much more resilient and much higher quality habitat and provide for a much greater hunting opportunity than a lot of the forests we have today. Better for wildlife, better for hunting. Indeed, yeah. And 
and about 2005, each state wildlife agency was required to write their own state wildlife action plan. And these things were to be the blueprint for wildlife conservation for the state wildlife agencies. And in writing these plans, they defined what they called species of greatest conservation need. So it's species of concern in each of those states. And um, those state wildlife action plans also pointed out major habitat issues and threats to those species of concern. And just about every one of those state wildlife action plans lists this lack of forest diversity as a key threat to the species of greatest conservation need. Uh, and you see this, the species that are threatened are the ones that require diverse forests. And uh, rough grouse at this point are included as a species of concern in 18 state wildlife action plans. And so we look at rough grouse as um, I'll repeat a story I told you last night. Yeah. My wife and I were at a party right before Christmas, and a good friend of ours comes up to us and says, oh, "How are you enjoying a new job?" You know, I said, "I love it. It's going really well." And uh, she says, "Well, I can't believe that many people are interested in a bird." And I was kind of taken aback by that, and a little bit offended, maybe. <laughs> and got my feet back under me and said, "Well, you know, this isn't." This isn't just about a bird. Uh, the people in the Rough Grouse Society and what the Rough Grouse Society does, it's a passion for conservation yeah. and forest health. And what the Rough Grouse is, it's, it's emblematic of that. And I see Rough Grouse as a bellwether for forest health. Um, they're forest-dependent bird. They're pretty darn tough. We see the places that they live, the habitats that they live in. Yep. Uh, so they can take a beating, but they're not migratory. So they're indicative of what's happening on that landscape where they live. And when, so when you have this bellwether that is now listed in 18 state wildlife action plans that it's in trouble, you need to really pay attention to what's going on because they are indicative of forest health. Okay. And just recently in November, we actually got to the point where rough grouse were proposed for state endangered status in Indiana, a state where they've declined 99% within my lifetime. So since the early 80s, there's been a 99% decline in rough grouse numbers. And so something is going on there, and uh, it's a forest health issue for sure. Yeah. There are a lot of things going on there, and rough grouse are a bellwether for that. Right. Yeah, you take a look at a, a, a native bird that one of the things that always amazes me about the rough grouse is the geographic range how how different the habitat they use from east to west north to south i mean that's a native bird that's using a lot of different habitats so when you see they've been here for a long time they obviously know what they're doing they know how to survive so when you see this bird become listed as a species of concern in 18 different states something's going on like you said yeah and we really we do need to to pay attention and State grouse biologists and the, the state grouse biologists in Indiana was talking about this in the late 90s, saying, hey, we're seeing some troubling trends here. And we know pretty well from grouse research about the 10-year cycle that occurs across much of their range. But this wasn't a cycle. It was just a straight, you know, downward trajectory that wasn't coming back up in 10-year increments. It was just really spiraling downward. Yeah. And so that siren call went out in the late 90s that we really need to work on uh, 
forest diversity and making these forests more resilient and actively managing them or we're going to lose rough grouse. And there's this whole other uh, group of species that are in the same boat. Of course, you know, our flagship is the rough grouse. We're the rough grouse right. society. But the same trends are occurring with things like golden wing warblers and thrashers and whippoorwills. So it's not just a grouse issue. Yeah. But that siren call was out there years ago, and we're looking at, at the point where rough grouse are proposed for endangered listing. We really need to pay attention. I think what's uh, interesting about you, um, and Nick and I have had the pleasure to sit down and be involved in some strategy meetings and stuff, and your tone is just so much different than this whole industry is used to. Um, and one of the things you're kind of highlighting here is things aren't necessarily that good. Like, sure, if you're up in private logging country in northern New England or Minnesota, like, yeah, the grouse hunting's great. But, um, you know, I know where I grew up, uh, where I shot my first grouse, um, there are no longer any grouse at all. You know, so it's interesting to hear you again. You're talking about these things and you're pointing out the critical nature of, of, of where we're in and, and a further. And again, I'm not trying to hand out the playbook or whatnot, but one of the interesting things that has kind of come to light in these discussions is that, um, and you've kind of hinted towards it earlier is you have all this acreage, you know, like in a state like Pennsylvania. And like you said, well, 10,000 acres of not well-managed land is not really great access for everybody to hunt. So it's, it's just a number at that point. It's not even really a, a thing. And the reality is, is that, you know, in the state of our industry right now, we recognize that, you know, this whole public lands are ours type thing, you know, we're our public land owners, you know, you know, as BHA is pushed out and whatnot, but there's another step past that, which is like, and you've pointed this out is that we're being denied something here. And what we're being denied is the fact by not having a healthy forest um, in a national park, you know, a national forest or whatever it might be, we're being denied hunting opportunities and it's not just rough grouse. And you're always quick to point that out. You know, I know me and Nick tend to be one track mind on upland birds. So, but, um, to hear you point that out and say, listen, like ultimately we're being denied something on something that we own as Americans. Um, and that's a problem. And also that you're, you're, you're blowing a whistle here and saying, Hey, listen, in the nineties, there was people trying to throw red flags out here and nobody paid attention. And now he, here it is, 2019, and we hit a, a fucking brick wall. Excuse my language. But and now it's like like we need to do something and clearly are just like kind of like, hey, like this is the way we're doing didn't work. You know, like and and I think that's refreshing about you where you're just like, hey, reality check people, like, wake up. This is happening. And like you're Ultimately, this this is all of ours, and it's not being done right. And we're an organization that supports science-based wildlife management. And the science is really there at this point. There, there's been a ton of work done um, with various neotropical migrant songbirds. There's been a ton of work done with rough grouse. The Appalachian Cooperative Grouse Research Project was the largest wildlife research project ever undertaken. And the information that came out of that is great science. And it told us how we need to manage these landscapes with rough grouse in mind. And as that was occurring, there was other research coming to the same conclusions about various songbirds. And one that really struck me, and this is to the, the importance of diverse forests, was 
when I was working in Western North Carolina on the Nantahala National Forest on that grouse project, groups that didn't want to see the forest touched were talking a lot about cerulean warblers. Cerulean warblers are a, a, a bird that requires older, big, open-grown uh, forests. And the rough grouse people were saying, well, we need this young forest. And the cerulean warbler people were saying, well, we need this old forest. Well, the more we learned about ceruleans, they nest in the old forest and they take the kids to the young forest as soon as they fledge. And we also learned about ruffed grouse that it isn't just about the young forest. Ruffed grouse use young forest where it's well mixed in with older forest. Yeah. Golden wing warbler. They nest in young forest. They take their fledglings into older forest. So this simplified human view of, you know, that, you know, ceruleans need this, rough grouse need this. It really doesn't apply in the natural world. And what all those things need is a, a more diverse forest with lots of different age classes mixed in as they would have been naturally as beavers were disturbing the landscape, as you had fires, um, you had huge forest landscapes. Yeah. And if a windstorm, a tornado or something hit on that forest landscape, huge disturbance it created young forests and big swaths, so it created habitat. A tornado hits on our, our fragmented landscape now, it's not very likely to create young forest habitat. It's more likely to impact a residential area. And so we're just kind of waiting naturally for these 100-year events to occur on smaller blocks, and it may or may not occur. And all right. the while, those species that need the forest diversity are going to blink out. And we're seeing it with rough grouse. We're seeing it with golden wing warblers. We're seeing it with cerulean warblers. All three of those are within those state wildlife action plans as species of greatest conservation need. Yeah. We pause this episode of the podcast for just a moment to let you know that today's show is also brought to you by Trinity Kennels, home of the Apanuel Breton. Trinity Kennels French Brittany Spaniels are from champion bloodlines, field tested and family approved for over 30 years. Coming from the most prestigious and elite French bloodlines as well as American champions, Trinity Kennels is committed to producing premier Apanuel Bretons for the field trialer and foot hunter alike. We now return to the Project Upland podcast. Yeah, we, you know, you talked about it earlier in the condensing forest, right? Like right. you look at a lot of this stuff from a deep, deep historical perspective when the landscape looked a lot different. I mean, we don't have to, we're not breaking news when we say that modern society has affected the landscape. So our forest, while it is still there and thank goodness we have the forest that we do have. I mean, we mm -hmm. still have, we still have forests at, you know, as a resource that we can utilize and thank goodness it's there. But those disturbances, if we're, truly waiting for those natural disturbances to affect that forest waiting for them to hit just the right spot on the forest when it's when it's condensed it could be a long wait and yeah. along the lines of those discussion is something you talked about earlier today where if we choose to wait and we choose to allow things to happen naturally there are other things that we might have to accept yeah if if we're not managing these constricted landscapes to make sure we have that habitat diversity there, if we're not actively managing portions of this forest, then species are going to blink out. Yeah. And what we're seeing with rough grouse in Southern Indiana, and for that matter, Southeastern Ohio right now, that's exactly what's happening. 
shouldn't have to convince anybody. There's right. data enough to say this species is des- deserves endangered listing. I mean, my gosh, there it is, right upside the head. It's right. happening. You know, we're not. Well, this could happen. It's happening right before us right now, and those other 18 states will be falling like dominoes if we don't get serious about some active forest management and interspersing different age classes and some diversity across them. So regarding forest diversity, we keep talking about it, and I want to make sure that it's clear to everybody listening. What we've essentially said, forest diversity, is we've talked a lot about age diversity. Mm -hmm. We need young forest. We need intermediate age forest. Mm -hmm. We need mature forest. Is that the biggest factor when we say the word diversity, or is there more to it? It really is. Those different age classes across the landscape affect a lot of different levels of diversity. They affect what what patches of vegetation are there. You've got sunlight hitting some patches, and it's it's brushier, more diverse. And you've got no sunlight hitting other patches, and that's habitat. So the overall age diversity drives the diversity down to the forest. Got it. Down to the forest floor. And what we're talking about here with actively managing the forest and creating age classes is through timber harvest. And from a science perspective, we now, forest management is a science. We know how to do it really well. Yeah. And when we're talking about uh, timber harvest on a national forest, we're not talking about clear cutting rainforest and, and clearing for agricultural lands. Yeah. And we're not talking about the same kind of cutting that over exploitation resulted in the mess that we had around, you know, 1900 years ago. Yeah. yeah. We know how to do forest management sustainably at this point and how to do it well. And there are check guards on these public land bases to make sure that we're doing it well, that it's not some fly by night operations. And, you know, something else that's interesting with other endangered species, this occurred to me that if you want to conserve prairie chickens or sage grouse or ringneck pheasants, for that matter, look at the amount of money that that's in the farm bill for paying for that valuable land base to be taken out of production. That's a very expensive endeavor. Mm-hmm. The endeavor that we have with forests right now, we can utilize that renewable, sustainable commodity to help create the habitat and to generate revenue and uh, economic development for rural communities. So it's not like we're fighting an economic tide here where we have to come up the money with the money through the farm bill or tax dollars for CRP. What needs to be done on these public land bases actually pays for itself and goes beyond that can bring some economic development to communities that are struggling. Yeah. So there are a lot of positives that, that can come out of active forest management. I, I think you bring up a, a point here that, you know, some of us that are very involved in this understand that we're dealing with a perception issue. Uh, more than we're dealing with anything else. Again, that idea that people think cutting, they think leveling rainforest and all these kind of things, it is just not accurate. Um, but it points up one very unique thing to you as a leader um, in being the president of the Rough Grouse Society. And something that me and Nick have been privy to is that you're a diplomat and you kind of subtly hinted to it a little earlier, talking about North Carolina and what one bird needed and what another one leading. And realizing the common ground 
And that is something very unique in this day and age and, you know, polarized politics and what else. You are reaching out to other organizations, organizations that RGS might not have a great past with and finding common ground and logical conversation in truly science-based conversation. Because I feel like people pillage that term, science-based this, but like mm. when you say it, I know you mean it, you know? So, um, and that's a thing. And, and I think that's important that people know that, that this is a little different because you look at groups that I know firsthand from being involved in the Rough Grouse Society before you were the president that were like serious issues. And there's been everything from lawsuits to you name it and you have extended a hand why is that like what you know and i get it i like and i think it's incredible and that's why i want to bring it up but talk about that like what are you thinking about when you go to a group like in north carolina and say hey this bird actually needs that and our bird needs this and like we have common ground here so like why are we fighting each other which is like just super logical you know so so why are you so logical in 2019 ben (laughs) well i think it's like a lot of people i'm longing for you know not screaming at each other anymore and just being in a stalemate on these issues and to me the stakes are high as they are in other arenas where the screaming is occurring and we're going to watch extinctions occur right before our eyes as conservationists um so we can't in my mind keep doing business that way so as i started looking at what was going on in indiana and who are all the people that are interested in conservation in indiana who are all the players and uh, one of the groups i got to looking at uh, was the indiana forest alliance and so I'm reading their website and they want wildlife, biological diversity, conserved public lands that are kept in the public trust and getting people outdoors. And like, that's the rough grouse society. Yeah. We for sure have a 90% overlap in the things that we want and the things that we are passionate about. And IFA is passionate about the public forests in Indiana. So, you know, there's 10% of this where we're not going to agree on how forests should be actively managed. But my gosh, give me somebody else I agree with on 90% of our platforms and we've got to be able to work it out. And so the way I saw this was that today with the conservation issues that are at hand, conservation passionate people can't be infighting. And we and other groups have, have been at loggerheads on this and it's just not going anywhere. And I think we need to break that free. I think we absolutely need to because species are imperiled. And I think it's important to point out two things. One, this case in Indiana, previous relationships between these two organizations have been very strained. And two, that you've already started to build a bridge there, which is um, which is phenomenal. It, it'll be a long trust-building process, I think. But it certainly starts with getting together and talking about it and Certainly pointing out that you agree on, you agree on 90% of what the issues are. Right. Like if we can't get together and work on something, then geez, what are we doing? Yeah. yeah. Well, and yeah, that's just the, <laughs> and it's like not easy. Right that, that just made it all sound very easy. No, no. And, We're and, just going yeah, to build trust. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, right, right. Right. No, but it's I think, take a little bit. you know, the fact that there's a step in that direction, which before there just wasn't, I mean, that's huge. And, and again, it's like, you know, you, the infighting is is the thing that I've seen. And, and as an organization, we've had conflicts because 
we worked with one group and then we couldn't work with another group because there was, you know, again, 10% disagreement in reality, you know? So, um, it just becomes a very unusual kind of aspect again, cause it's like you said, it's like, even, you know, we're sitting here with three people. If you separate all this conversation, you know, there's probably, you know, more than 10% that we disagree with between each other, you know, we're not probably. the same three people, you know? So, um, to put it in that just, you know, plain context is, I mean, it just makes perfect sense. Yeah. And the perfect example is, you know, we had kind of chatted about that, you know, the 90% overlap. Of course, you've got the 10% that maybe you don't see eye to eye on and maybe, and that's a really important 10%. But if you look at that 90%, what are the opportunities for collaboration there? What could happen? And the way that one of the examples that you provided was, okay, so we're, maybe we're not seeing eye to eye on the management of these forests, but what if we added more public forest? Sure. Yeah. That, that would be a piece of common ground that we definitely could work on. And, but before we get there, we're going to have to clear out all this old baggage and and figure out how to work together on stuff. And, and my take on it in Indiana was that if we go arm in arm as conservation groups with IFA and we roll together into the state legislature with some proposed legislation, it would be very difficult to stop. Yeah. I mean, we would be a powerhouse with that. And make no mistake, they'll be paying to this, and I'm probably losing members right now who were in the, you know, fisticuffs with these groups over the years. I I get it. I would be a liar if I said that. I certainly haven't went off on them. <laughs> yeah, I do. I get it. And I get, I get yeah. angry about these things, too, because we're really passionate. And right. Yeah. People have their convictions. But... Um, yeah. Well, you're bringing sanity to it. And as somebody, you know, I'm, I'm creative director, which means by default, I'm emotional. Um, so I, you know, yeah, 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 exactly. So to have somebody to kind of speak logic in a moment of of emotion is, is really kind of, you know, we talk about the bellwether here and, and, you know, you're kind of the, the lighthouse in the storm <laughs> aspect, you know, it's like, okay, all right, all right, there's the lighthouse. Well, when, I can chill out a bit. <laughs> when you're managing public lands for a state wildlife agency and an often, you know, embattled state wildlife agency, the game commission with our hunting public. And, you know, you've, you've devoted your career and your passion and your life to this conservation mission and you have somebody just fly off the handle at you, you know, just right. in your face at the gas station when you roll up in your game commission rig, you know, you're on your way home, you've been away from your family for three days and somebody just rolls up and finger in your chest and, you know, yeah, <laughs> getting after you, you just kind of, kind of, which I, I, step, I like. I'm gonna, we're talking Pisces it. now, so you didn't you didn't take that well. Your wife had to talk to you a lot when you got oh, home. Oh man, you're yeah, no doubt. You know, about like it. any. I mean, I I you know, my poor wife, you know, deals with it when I. I mean, I I I take everything personal, you know. So it's like, oh for sure, you know. You so it's to. like I go home and I'm just like, you know, ah, oh, this is really bothering me, and like. You know, and whatnot. And I mean, God bless her for the shit she has me rant about, you know, never ending. But again, I think as a Pisces, you do the same thing, right? Like I'm making yeah. bold assumptions about how accurate <laughs> horoscopes are right now. <laughs> Absolutely. My wife has heard it. And, and it would worry me if I quit taking it personally, because that would mean some of that passion had has gone. Faded. Right. Absolutely. You take it personally, but you also realize 
that if you're going to get anything done, you just have to kind of work through that and, and figure it out and get back to the drawing board. And okay, here's, you're just spitting all over me, but I think we agree on about 2%. Can we talk about that 2%? Because I really need to get this done. Not as good as the 90%. But so if you can negotiate with the 2% guy, the 90% should be an easy, easy fix. I'm not saying I did, but I tried. <laughs> well, the nature of these podcasts, we're just three guys sitting in a hotel room talking around a microphone, right? We talked about some pretty heavy stuff. And I don't think, you know, I think, this conversation may have very well oversimplified some of these heavy issues that we're yeah. talking about. And, and I just want to kind of reiterate, that's not our intent. And we don't mean to belittle the work and the efforts that people have poured their heart and souls into, into some of this stuff over the years, but hundred percent, we want to have a conversation about it. And that's kind of why we well, brought a lot of this stuff up. Well, I think the big question here, and I think I'm sure you and I can come up with more lighthearted questions to ease out of this, <laughs> but where is the rough grouse society going? You know? Yeah. Oh, wow. You're, you're at the helm, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Rough Grouse Society needs needs to be engaged where, wherever we're needed in each state. So working in Pennsylvania, I realize the importance of NGOs and your ability to partner as a state agency with an NGO to fill a gap and whatever that gap may be to be able to get work done. Uh, there was a, a period of time where... Um, we were on a hiring freeze in the state of Pennsylvania. We had some real big opportunities and some funding to do some management work, but I didn't have the people to be able to do it. So we partnered with an NGO. Hey, we've got the funding to do this, but we can't hire people right now. Can you help us out by, you know, interns and technicians? And, and in that larger partnership, you're kind of gap filling. So that could be very different in Pennsylvania. The need it could be a very different need in North Carolina or in Massachusetts or in Indiana or in Wisconsin. So we've got to be really flexible and have a business model that allows us to fill those needs, whatever they are, wherever they are. Yeah. And they're going to be diverse across the country. So overall, that's kind of uh, that's our MO. Yeah. We've talked a ton about the Rough Grouse Society. We mm -hmm. haven't mentioned the American Woodcock Society. And mm -hmm. I think it's I think it's yeah, yeah. it's been made clear on this podcast before, I think, but the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society are the same organization. Mm -hmm. But Ben, talk a little bit about the American Woodcock Society. And what I really want to get to is let's use this opportunity to let's talk about, you know, granted you've only you've only been there for six months or so. Nine. Nine months. Nine, nine months. So you got some you got some you got some time in the organization, but let's talk about some of the wins. And I'm thinking specifically Eastern Woodcock migration. Some of the real habitat work that's happening that you guys are doing right now. Yeah, let me go back to what you started with, yeah. with American Woodcock Society. So in about 2014, AWS was rolled out as kind of a partner organization within the umbrella of the Rough Grouse Society as an additional opportunity to um, further our geographic influence, I guess is a way to put it, to sure. other places where... Uh, there aren't grouse. Places like um, East Texas and Louisiana and um, Coastal Plain and Piedmont, North Carolina, and um, and be able to have a geographic influence on habitat there because grouse hunters and woodcock hunters go hand in hand and there's an, a lot of opportunity to manage habitat and hunting opportunity for American woodcock. 
uh, in a lot of those areas. I went on a woodcock hunt a few years ago in Cape May, New Jersey, and I didn't realize growing up in Pennsylvania, you could have a woodcock hunt in southern New Jersey. But as those birds are flying down the coast, they hang out there in southern New Jersey until they get the right wind and continue their flight down. But it was an awesome hunting opportunity in between the end of our deer season and before Christmas. Was it a quick hunt? It was three or four days we were there. But, you know, everything in my home state was out, and it was additional hunting opportunity that was really neat. So, Woodcock bring that to the table. And the other thing that's really neat about Woodcock is call them our instant gratification species, where if you manage habitat, they occupy it very quickly because they're migratory. They're passing through. They look down and like, whoa, that looks good. (laughs) I'm there. And you can go out, and you can listen to them in the spring. You can take people out, introduce them to the uplands through the sky dance, which is, you know, such a crazy ritual. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of opportunity to, to do conservation with American woodcock in mind. Yeah. And Eastern woodcock migration, that's a project that RGS AWS is helping to fund right now. We interviewed Eric Blumberg on the podcast a while ago. We talked extensively about the project. Talk a little bit about the relationship with AWS and that project. Yeah, AWS and uh, the Rough Grouse Society, we've, we've been involved from the beginning there in support. And um, one of the big support things has been buying transmitters. And that's pretty neat to be involved in uh, putting a transmitter on this bird. And then you can follow it down the eastern flyway. And uh, for us, it's really valuable information with these migration paths and where the birds are overwintering. So two really important things. And then something I think is super important is the stopover habitat. And we're starting to get an idea of these little hotspots, so to speak, where these birds that are flying 50, 100, 400 miles in a night are stopping and they need prime habitat to fuel back up there so they can make the rest of their journey. So that's a real neat science-driven conservation priority like we know where these birds are stopping let's make sure they've got prime habitat there so they can refuel and keep going yeah on that aws thing one of the things that you were passionate about when you took over was uh, a sense of inclusion um and one of the big steps that actually came into that was uh switching up in the magazine a bit um which nobody's received it yet. I'm literally dying to see it. And it's funny. I actually look at your opening letter, which uh, I was humbled that you even mentioned me in it, but I hear the story about like waiting for this magazine and anticipation. And it's like, I don't think I've ever felt so much anticipation for an issue outside of issue zero of project upland magazine. You were excited to see that too. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just a little bit. (laughs) But um, Yeah. So That was a cool move. I mean, you essentially what you pointed out here was um, the fact that, you know, again, we kind of did it on this podcast. You know, we spent three quarters of this podcast talking about rough grouse. And and again, it makes sense. It's the bellwether. It's it's, again, we're saying this is the taking the temperature of the forest, showing whether it's healthy or not. But you took some radical steps to fix kind of an imbalance. Yeah, well, our our magazine, and you know, this was not taken lightly at all. Our our magazine is beloved. It's been there through all that sixty years, yeah. and so just rolling in and changing something there, you know, shouldn't be taken lightly. But there was something that really stood out. It was just called the Rough Grouse Society Magazine, and here for the last five years, you know, we're also the American Woodcock Society. 
And so I wanted to fix that. And uh, going forward, we're going to make sure that there's a lot in there about woodcock conservation. You know, woodcock are listed in 28 state wildlife action plans as a species of concern. So we've got to be paying a big time attention to what's going on with, with woodcock too. Uh, so the name covers, I think, just fit it perfectly. I can remember what mile marker I was at on Interstate 80 when I had AJ on Bluetooth in the truck and we're just spitballing this thing and covers just fell out of the air. I don't remember exactly yeah, how, but I, was, I remember where I was. I was driving north and I had just gotten out of a rest stop and I was coming back from hunting Bob White for my first time in Virginia. I just shot a film down there and uh, yeah, I remember us talking about it. It was like a, we talk a lot of bullshit on the phone and, <laughs> and talk through a lot of things and uh, I think it's great to clear the air and figure out, you know, kind of, and I think it articulates things, but that day, you know, that was, it was funny cause we beat around on a lot of things and it's it just did. like, we hit that and it was like, boom. Yeah. And the name covers, and I've really been sensitive to it since then of hearing how much people talk about covers Yeah, yeah. and it is part of our upland hunter vocabulary right? for yeah. sure. And sometimes yeah, we well, know what that is. And, and I think what's unique too, is that. And we, you know, it's actually, I don't think we talked about it in depth, but we did briefly talk about it that day was, and I think we actually talked about it in a follow-up call that you were on when you first found out that we had talked about this, yeah. meaning Nick, um, the choice between the word cover or covert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I've actually had a couple people email Project Upland and say like, hey, like, why wasn't it covert? You know, and um, I, I think part of that was, Again, what it came down to was a sense of occlusion because a cover is, and, and you painted a great picture in kind of that open letter about it. Yep. And part of it is that it's where you go and hang up your tree stand. You know, you shoot a deer there, you, you rabbit hunt there, you know, you do so many different things. And I think covert is a unique word to kind of the grouse community, yeah. you know, like, and, and maybe I'm incorrect in that. And I, and I know we talked about this, you know, and, and whatnot, but you know, I felt like, you know, I had a couple people email me and kind of be like, hey, like, you know, like, I thought that it's always been this. And it's like, well, both of those terms are correct. You know, like, it's not incorrect to say it either way, but there was certainly a level of thought here to say that the word cover made more sense, again, under that idea of, of more inclusion, you know? Yeah. And covers is, it's inclusive. It's, it's multifaceted inclusion in that it's, we now add American Woodcock Society, Rough Grouse Society into the same mix. It's something that bird hunters talk about, but it's also somebody that appreciates the forest, right? It's covers is it's referencing the forest, which again, at the end of the day, yeah, that's what this organization does. I, I took a bit of inspiration from that um, in my open letter, actually, for a summer issue of Project Upland magazine and kind of what we talked about and what this indicated in, in my story is that covers indicate like a sense of value. And you pointed that out. Friendships are built there and you can lose friendships there. And it came down to this overall idea that like, you know, like if somebody steals your cover, like it's a whole part of our culture, you know, like, is that person going to go back? I mean, I can't even, I probably couldn't count how many people that I've had this conversation with where it's like, Oh, you know, this person do that. Like, what do I do? And, and on, this recent open letter, I pointed out something, uh, wisdom my mother gave me, and it had nothing to do with actual covers because my mother's not a gross hunter, but, um, my mother always despised hunting. She's, she actually would never eat wild game, and now it's, she eats it every time she comes to my house. She's all about it. It's, it's kind of a funny evolution. But, anyways, she always told me about, uh, an, 
piece of advice about money and it was about lending money to friends. And it was, you know, if, if you intend to keep a friend and you let them borrow money, you should never expect that to get that money back. And part of my indication in that, that open letter, and it was inspired from what you said is, is how critical covers are. And it is, it's, it's, it's a value. There's a valuation to it for us. And one of my things about mentoring, and this is what it was about is I bring somebody to a cover understanding that concept of not being paid back. Like I know that there is a strong possibility that they are going to return to that cover, whether I told them that they couldn't or not. And you just have to accept that as part of kind of the process. But again, that's given credence to the value of what a cover truly is to us. Well, yeah, yeah, accept it and really appreciate it that the reason they're going to come back there is because it is now a place where they had a first. Yeah. And it's going to be so special to them. And that was something that you provided to them that that you gave to them. Was that a sneak peek at the summer issue of Project Open Magazine? Yeah, I mean, I open up with some kind of rant that AJ's on that day, you know, like. Ben, you got any bird dogs? Oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, we, we, lighthearted. Yeah, we got to go lighthearted now. Like we've we, deep philosophical. Yeah, we should have at least gotten that out of the way early hey, on. We yeah, got time, we got time to do it now. Yeah, I have a male English setter. Yeah. Male English setter, how old? He's six years. Oh, no, you know what? Holy, today's my dog's birthday. Wow. March shit. 5th. And What's just, his name? His name is Pax, so he's seven today. Should we sing to wow. him? No, but... No, well, you got, you got Grim, the uh, the Funko version of Grim sitting yeah. here to yeah. indicate any dog that needs to be. Mini Grim. Yes. Mini Grim. All right, English the, setter. Yeah, there, there is a setter. Seven-year-old English setter today. Yep. We, we did kind of skip over this when you were talking about your early days. Hmm. Bird dogs, were they always in the picture, or were, did they come later? Oh, no. Um, beagles were in the picture picture when I grew up. Mm-hmm. I, I remember a friend of my dad's had a setter, so I got to see that every now and again. But we did a lot of small game hunting, rabbit hunting. And when I went to Mississippi to work on that turkey project is where I met a very dear friend of mine at Mississippi State, Daryl Jones. And he took me out quail hunting with two Elhu pointers that he right. had this big running covey dog. And then this sweet little liver female close working thing. And it, that was it, man. It was on. I had to have a pointing dog. He says, well, you're going to live up there in grouse country. You got to get you a setter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I so do. stereotypical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It happens. So, so there it was. That's what got me into, into the pointing dogs. Awesome. And he's a fantastic family dog and, you know, all, all that stuff. He comes home bloody and beat up and I get a lot of flack about that, but he's a, he's we a all wonderful do. dog, but he's seven. So there's going to be a need for, for a pup coming in here fairly yeah. soon, which is, which is tough when you're, you know, president of the rough grouse society, there's a lot of travel and you think about yeah. uh, complicating your life and all that you have to do with the job with the new puppy yeah. <laughs> and can you do your due diligence to, to train that pup. And, um, I've dined myself out on this on podcast before I have been stewing about getting another beagle because there's a lot of opportunities right around the house to take my kids out the back door. Like I used to hunt, you know, just turn this beagle loose and, you know, head out the back door for two hours after school. Yeah. It's all, it's all about getting, getting that opportunity yeah we should we should probably talk about what we've been doing for the past couple days though wait a minute before we do that i have to ask 
Like what? the most, uh, I got to ask this question. <laughs> Tell us about the first grass you shot. I'm sorry. I know this can be a very touchy subject, but I want to hear it. Do you remember your first yeah, grass? Oh, oh, my, oh my word. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely yeah. do. So uh, you could start hunting in Pennsylvania when you were 12. And so I killed my first whitetail at 12. And this is by order of difficulty of the game pursuit, I think. <laughs> the first whitetail was at 12, and they kept coming after that. The first wild turkey was at 14, and the first rough grouse was at 15. And Wow. Yeah, so the first couple of years, it was like you don't even get hardly get the gun up. And I was, I was foot hunting without a dog. Right. And so barely getting the gun up. Second year, you can get the gun up every now and again, shoot. Third year, you're shooting but not hitting. And it was in, in that end of the third or early fourth year. And I made plans to meet my buddy Ty on a Saturday morning. He lived out to the east of us. And he was going to start on the east end of the woods behind my house. And I was going to start behind the house. And we are going to meet up about lunch. So head out down the trailed across this beaver dam behind our house that I'm, I'm shooting a grouse today. Today is the day. <laughs> and I can hear Ty over there. He's just pounding squirrels. I can hear him shoot. <laughs> I'm like, shoot, man. I'm pretty competitive. <laughs> so I'm like, no, I'm not shooting squirrels. I'm grouse hunting today. I'm not going to get distracted. So I crossed this beaver dam and came up on this little flat and there was a hemlock blowdown right there. And I took a step forward and a grouse blows out of that blowdown and I got the gun up and I didn't shoot. And I paused with the gun up and then heard the ch -ch -ch, those first two steps of the next bird taking those two steps. He yeah. flushed up and directly into the path of where my gun already was up and then just in that motion squeezed when I saw him <laughs> at the end of that barrel and that saw, you, saw, him, you shooting? saw him fold. Or are you shooting for a gun? That was my uh, Sears and Roebuck Model 200 12 gauge. Pump. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And I, but after that, you know what? I had enough confidence that I am I'm I can do this now. So I started hitting birds more regularly after that. That's great. So thirty some years ago, and you still remember it? You can still picture. it? I can remember it clearly, yeah. vividly. I can still hear those two steps of that bird taking the first couple steps out so from that blowdown. Something, tell, something tells me you and I as grouse were not in the wing. <laughs> so we're not going to relive those in this podcast today. We grew up in a... <laughs> Partridge hunters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, so I guess, yeah, our first grouse, you're right. To be a grouse, it had to be in the air. So Correct. So I shot a lot of partridge before I got to a grouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 there you go. So things coming up for RGS and what we've been doing over the past few days here and why my hair hurts right now we've had three straight days here of talking about and communication and late nights <laughs> talking about communications and um, where rgs is going and communicating that along the way and being engaged on social media and getting our message out there because for all the good work that the rough grouse society has done it's it's been kind of a secret society, more clubbish yeah. in feel, and we need to blow that wide open yeah. and um, and further our mission and uh, increase our membership and tell people about the great work that we're doing out there, and not just hunters, but other people interested in con conservation, yeah, people that are interested in forest wildlife, and let them know what we're doing, and hopefully bring them into the fold with us as well to help us impact this mission. Yeah, 
Yeah, the three of us sitting in this room are pretty dang biased towards the Rough Grouse Society and American <laughs> Woodcock Society. But with that in mind, it's a, it's a fine organization and there's good work being done and there's biologists on the ground and there's members. I mean, you know, we could go on and on. There's members donating their time, energy, resources. I yep. mean, that's some of the things that we see every day. Awesome members. And, and I think what's unique too is uh, not that past people haven't engaged with the membership, but... One of the things we recently did, I know you created an Instagram account because you really felt an interest in, in really putting your ear to the ground and not only hearing and seeing what people are saying, but engaging in that conversation. And uh, I want to throw this out there. If you're on Instagram, uh, Ben Jones underscore forest wildlife. We'll drop a link in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. And follow um, the Rough Grouse Society. Follow 100%, Society. 100%. But you, I think it's important to point out that you are very interested in being part of the conversation. And I think for a lot of nonprofits in our space, presidents tend to be very, you know, elusive behind the scenes. And uh, you're like, I mean, I'm thinking like Braveheart here. <laughs> you're like, you know, you're the first one charged into battle right now. And I, I think that's great. I mean, I'm I feel so much energy and passion for this more than I ever have. And I know you do too, Nick, you know, so yeah. um, I think that's really cool. And, and I hope that people, you know, come to this rally call, you know, cause I think, you know, and I think people are really going to see that laid out in the next 12 months. And well, the recharge for me comes from getting with members and hearing member stories. You know, I heard this member story of, of a, a member that became a life sponsor, a young guy running a construction business and started working uh, a second job to save up to do his life sponsorship and paid it in cash to get his life sponsorship because he just wanted to get to that level of support in Rough Grouse Society. And just member stories like that of people committing their time and passion for decades my grandfather was a member and my dad was a member. Now I'm a member. So yeah, mixing it up. I mean, that's where the energy comes from for me is, is being with members and hearing member stories. And yeah, yeah, it's inspirational for me. Best part about it is we got a, we got a lot of room for more members. You sure do. You know, well, sure. you know, and, and, and this is by no means when I say this, this isn't coming from the rough grass side. This isn't coming from Ben, but this is something you and I talk about. This is something project upland talks about. Um, if you're using the resource and actually we've gotten a lot of emails about this, about people like, how can I get back? I can't afford to necessarily join a nonprofit or anything, but this is kind of my thing. Like if it, we can't just think that buying a hunting license is enough. Yeah. We have to, you know, the idea of a conservationist is that uh, the definition is that, you know, you cared about something to kind of go above and beyond, you know, buying a license is a legal requirement. So you're not going above and beyond. You're doing what's, what's the minimum base amount. If you're a grouse hunter, if you're a woodcock hunter, I just stress that we have a responsibility to give back 35 bucks. Do it. If you can't afford it, volunteer, you know, like help out just, you know, whatever it is, if, if time's even an issue, when you can't get out hunting, just mentor someone, you know, like, but if you're in this space, if you're hunting grouse, if you are hunting woodcock, like, like we need everybody. Yeah. You know, like we need all hands on deck right now. And when I was, when I was in school and looking back at, you know, the, the founders of, of conservation and you see these black and white pictures of Teddy Roosevelt and Gifford Pinchot, you know, and to me it was always like, you know, they had their time, you know, the, early 1900s there were so many things that needed to be done that was just their greatness came from their time and the need 
we have that time and that need right, right now. Right and we now, need yeah. that type of conservationist. And I'm so motivated by seeing, like with uh, looking at BHA posts and these all black and white photos of TR up there, and you have the TRCP, the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation yep. Partnership, yep. that is leading this charge that we need for our generation of conservationists to step up. And it's ours to do. Rough grouse are listed as endangered in a state, and they're a species of concern in 18 others. That is definitely a time calling for us, and we're going to need people that are tireless and then devoting their lives to the cause, or, or we're not going we're not going to have that resource anymore. Well, guys, <laughs> oh man, anything else well, in the world? Confessions of a squirrel no, just, hunter. <laughs> confessions no. of a. A rabbit raiser. <laughs> just, just keep an eye on our, our Facebook page and follow us on Instagram. And, uh, man, join us for sure. But yeah. um, just keep an eye on what we're doing. And we're going to we're gonna be working hard on communicating a lot of things we're working on from West Nile Research, learn more there, to habitat conservation, to new partnerships. So uh, just keep track of us. And, man, please join us. Worst case scenario, you get a great magazine four times a year. That is, yep, yep. <laughs> Covers magazine. Come we your we way. need we need your help. We can't we can't do it without our members, and we've we've had such devoted members over the years. We need to add to the ranks. Yeah, absolutely. I'll second that. AJ, thank you. Thoughts? No, I mean this is great. I mean I think it's uh it's an honor to have you on here, and it's uh again somebody who's inherently interested in what the rough grouse society is doing i think that we have some exciting times ahead of us and thank you for that well thank you all for what you're doing with project upland and you know communicating out about our our culture and and what we do to the masses it's fantastic yeah absolutely ben i appreciate you uh joining us on the podcast the listeners i know will appreciate it as well and uh keep them coming for you thanks for listening everybody until next time Thanks for listening to the Project Upland podcast presented by Onyx Hunt and by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Dr. Collars, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, Gordian Sons Outfitters, Dakota 283 Kennels, and Trinity Kennels. Don't forget to leave us a rating, leave us a review, share the podcast post. You can be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Upland podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.